what it means when they come. And to start off, I thought it was good to, to just try to get at this idea of, um, let's see how I could put this. When couples come to me for premarital counseling, which I enjoy doing, one of the first things that we always discuss is expectations. Specifically, unvoiced expectations or ungrounded expectations. Because if you are in a relationship, you know that expectations have the potential to cause disruption in the relationship, right? When you expect your spouse to do something, but you didn't tell them that you expected them to do that thing, and then they didn't do the thing that you didn't tell them you expected them to do, and then you get angry at them for that, that's a problem, is it not? Now, I know that... Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. So there was, a, there was one time, and I think I've told you all this before, but before we had kids, when I was still working at Lowe's, uh, I had a Saturday off, which was rare. And so uh, I spent the entire day outside, the entire day outside in summer doing yard work because Anna had been talking about how our grass looked terrible, the garden was terrible, the bush, everything was terrible. And I was like, you know what? I'm a good husband. I've got the day off. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go and work outside all day in the hot sun, and she's going to greet me with this warm, well, I love you so much. You're the best. I'm going to buy you some hot wings. You know, all the good stuff, right? (laughs) So I walk in the door at the end of the day. Here comes my hero's welcome. We're in a fight, apparently. I didn't know this, but (laughs) walk in the door and realize immediately, uh uh-oh, Anna's upset with me. Don't know what I did. So I ask her, well, I expected she would be happy that I had just taken care of all the things that she wanted me to take care of. She expected that if I had the day off work, I would spend the entire day with her. Neither one of us voiced those expectations, and so both of us were disappointed, and the whole evening was ruined because we both were disappointed with each other. I thought she'd be happy. She thought I'd spend the day with her. Unvoiced, unrealistic, ungrounded expectations can do that kind of thing, right? And here's what I know about us as Christians. Every Christian has certain expectations about what they think is going to happen in the end times, right? We all expect certain things to happen. We all have assumptions about what may or may not happen. But the problem is, if those expectations aren't grounded in what Scripture actually says is going to happen, then we're going to be confused. And we could be disappointed, some of us. And we could be frustrated. And so what we need to do is we need to look at what the Bible actually says we can expect when the end comes so that there is no confusion, there is no frustration, and there is no disappointment. And that's what leads us to Revelation 6 and these seven seals where we begin with the four horsemen and they tell us what to expect. And the four horsemen, although they do bring disaster, the comfort for us as God's people is that God is sovereign over all the events of history that take place, past, present, and future. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to dive in. If you have your Bibles there, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. This is what the Bible says. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, before we dive into all the specifics here, um, we should just make a little bullet point. For almost everything in the book of Revelation, there is an Old Testament background, 
right? This book references the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. It's full of references and allusions and all sorts of uh, callbacks to the Old Testament. And this, too, has an Old Testament reference, an Old Testament background. So you'll find this in the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is what the Bible says there. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel talked with me and said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And then just a little bit later, in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, this is what we read again. Again, I lifted my eyes in soul, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. What are they doing? Patrolling the earth, right? Yeah. So... There is an Old Testament background to these four horses that we read about in the book of Revelation here. And it's important to notice that who is the one opening the scrolls here in Revelation? Jesus, who is pictured as the what? The Lamb, okay? So the Lamb's opening the scrolls, and each time he opens one of the seals, uh, uh, one of the four living creatures is going to say, come. He's going to summon one of the riders, and he calls to this first one, In the first horseman, what color horse is he riding? A white horse. And what is the purpose of this horseman? To conquer. He comes out conquering and ready to conquer. I don't know if I spelled that correctly, but yeah, it's it's right. So yeah, that's his mission. He's here to conquer, and he comes out conquering. He's on a conquest. He has a white horse, which was the symbol of victory. It was a symbol of you're winning something, right? And there's a lot of debate about who this rider is, okay? I know you don't believe me because everything in the book of Revelation, everybody agrees on, right? Everybody loves this book. We all agree on it all the time. No, there's a bunch of debate about who the first horseman is. Now, some people have suggested that the first rider is a metaphor for the proclamation of the gospel that the proclamation of the gospel goes forward to out all the earth and the gospel will be victorious. It will overcome and conquer the unbelieving hearts of people who have previously rejected Jesus. And so the gospel goes forward and is victorious. White horse, victory. That's one option. Another option, people have suggested that the rider is Jesus himself. A lot of people believe this, that the rider is Jesus. Why would they think that? Anybody know? There are a couple reasons. Okay, a crown was given unto him. Yeah, that's one reason. So uh, Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 is pictured riding a what? A white horse. And he's wearing what? 
a crown. And so people have said, well, this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the first horseman, and he goes forward into all the earth, conquering the unbelieving hearts of people, and he wins the victory, bringing many to salvation. And then, one other popular suggestion, so there are three primary ones. Some have suggested that the rider is the Antichrist, or some sort of satanic figure. Because it makes sense if you think about what the Antichrist does. I mean, think about Revelation chapter 13 when it talks about the beast and the Antichrist. One of his main purposes is to copy Jesus, right? He tries to convince people that he actually is Jesus by the way he acts and talks and the miracles that he does, even though he is a cheap counterfeit, and we all know it. And so the beast comes out, they say, to conquer humans, into following him, to deceive people into thinking that he actually is the real, true Christ and conquer them, leading them astray. Okay, so we see that all of these, they they have merit. There's reasons for believing. That's, again, what I always tell you. Everybody has a reason for believing the things they believe. Okay, we need to acknowledge that and just interact with it. So, my question to you, who's the writer? Which one? do you think is correct? That's a good point. Would he need to carry a sword? All right, Bobby, Bobby's, look, that's what I like. Bobby says, I'll tell you what I think and I don't care if anybody disagrees. Bobby says it's the Antichrist. There you go, Bobby. Anybody else? Gene, you have something? The, so playing devil's advocate here, the people who think that this is, um, well, you didn't say who you think it is, but the reference to the bow, there is a messianic psalm, I believe it's Psalm 8, that talks about, uh, the Messiah having a bow. And Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, tells us that psalm is about Jesus. And so they would say there is biblical warrant to believe that Jesus has a bow. And again, devil's advocate, they would say that the following three horsemen are the arrows to this bow, that they are the metaphorical arrows that are going to cause the destruction and bring him the conquest that he's on. Again, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree. That's devil's advocate to explain the bow and the arrows.
So we've got two who are saying Antichrist. Anybody want to agree or disagree? Oh, we got three. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, the thing is we can't be dogmatic here because the Bible doesn't identify as our resident theologian pointed out, just as like, why do we have to say who it is at all? Right, you, you don't. You, you focus on the effects of what's going to happen, but uh, just to kind of, you know, pick some of this apart, I don't think that it makes sense for it to be Jesus. And one reason, Miss Vicky very wisely pointed out, Jesus is the one opening the seals. And the, one of the four living creatures calls and a rider comes out. So Jesus would have had to open and then go and get on a horse and then come back but he's going to continue opening seals, and the horses and the riders are going to stay, so it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to go back and forth. I mean, that's just a logical thing, but, you know, it's worth noting. Uh, The other thing worth noting, as Gene pointed out, is that this rider is holding a bow, uh, and nowhere in Scripture besides Psalm 8, so nowhere in Revelation, uh, does Jesus ever have a bow. All throughout Revelation, he only has one weapon, which is a sword. And you see it at the beginning of Revelation, you see it at the end of Revelation. And uh, another thing worth mentioning, I know this is just for for nerds like me, but uh, it's really interesting when you look in the Greek, it says that this rider is wearing a crown, right? Okay, again, this is for nerds like me. I don't think you care about this, but I'm already going to do it. So, the word crown used here in this verse, if you're going to write this down, verse 2, the Greek word for crown here is stephanos, okay? Now you're like, why is that important? Why does it matter? Well, because the other time in Revelation where Jesus is depicted wearing a crown, it's a different Greek word, one that you already know that you didn't know that you knew that is a Greek word. And it's the word diadem, which actually is a Greek word for crown. Here's the difference. A Stephanos crown was a crown that you would typically win if you were the victor of something. So like if you're participating in games, Olympic-type sports, stuff like that, if you had conquered another kingdom, you would take their crown for yourself, and it would be called a Stephanos because you have won it. You were the victor in that, and so it is yours now. A diadem is different. It was a crown specifically for you that you had the right to wear because you are worthy to wear that crown. And so is there... Something going on there? I don't know. But I think it's worth noting that the word used here for crown is different than the one used for when Jesus is wearing a crown later in the book of Revelation. So all that to say, I really don't think that it makes sense for Jesus to be this writer, the first one. I think it makes more sense if, uh, if it is some sort of antichrist figure or some sort of satanic uh, figure here. And I think that it makes sense for that because he comes out conquering and he's going to conquest. You know, he, he wants to overtake the nations. And so I think it makes sense to say that the, the first rider, the one on the white horse, is some sort of satanic figure, some sort of antichrist who is seeking to deceive the world into believing that he is Jesus. He's on a white horse. He's wearing a crown like Jesus. He's got a bow like the Messiah would have, according to Psalm 8. All of these things are deceptive techniques that are going to lead people to him, and so he can conquer either by force or by manipulation. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do it, but that's his goal. And then you see the consequences of that conquering in the next rider. So look at verses 3 through 4. 
The Bible says, And when he opened the second seal, I heard the sound, or the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. All right, so we have rider number two. What color is the horse? Bright red. You all failed miserably. Bright red. What's the purpose of this rider? Like, or yeah, like Tommy's shirt. That's right. That's right. He comes to take peace. And specifically, how does he do it? With a sword? But what, what does he do? Did you notice the effects there? Yeah, he, he's putting man against man, right? So, yeah, that's right. Man versus man. You can simplify it and call it war. That's the purpose of this rider. And obviously, I mean, you see that even in his horse, right? Why is it bright red? Bloodshed. Yeah, that's, that's the effect. That's what's going to happen. The first rider comes out conquering. And what's the effect that the second rider is going to take advantage of? Bloodshed. There's going to be mass bloodshed all over. He takes peace from the earth and he sets man against man. You have nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Everybody is killing each other with deadly weapons. This is what you expect when the horsemen come. And then there's the third one. Look at verses 5 through 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So, this one's super easy, right? What color is this horse? Black. What's the purpose of this rider? Okay, famine. Anything else? Man, Joseph, stop looking at my notes before. Economic troubles, hardships, economic problems, whatever you want to call it. That's part of what's going on here. I mean, notice what he says. There's going to be famine, economic hardships. So the conquest of the first horseman and the second horseman, the bloodshed, result in widespread economic hardship, famine, and a scarcity of sustenance for people to eat. So, I mean, think about it like this, right? People in the first century, we're talking about people in the first century here, they would usually eat about one quart of wheat per day. All right? Everybody tracking? One quart of wheat per day, and the price of that wheat was one denarius. All right, so one denarius, that was one day's wage. You work for one day, you get one denarius. And notice, that is the price that is set here. He says the price of the wheat is going to be one denarius. So notice what's happening here. Take a step back and think about this. He's talking about people who are barely making it. This is going to be the reality of what's happening here. You work one day, you make your day's wage, and guess what? All the food that you need for that day, you have to use all the money you made that day to supply all the food that you need for that day. But it goes even further, doesn't it? Because that's how much one person ate. Who was doing the main working during these times? Who was going out working a job? The man. Thank you, Brian. And who was staying at home? 
the women and children. So if one man eats one quart of wheat a day, and he can only afford one quart of wheat, what's he going to give his wife and kids? Corn? I don't think they had corn back then over there. Uh, the barley, yeah. Oh, a quarter, a quarter, yeah, yeah. So you would either have to try to divide up all the, the, the quarter that you had into even more divisions so that you're barely eating anything, or you buy the cheaper grain, which was barley, which you see he even addresses here. Uh, they could buy barley for, for a different price, and it would be cheaper. So it wasn't as useful as wheat, but it was more affordable, so you could actually, everybody could eat, you know, which is great when everybody can eat. Do what? Yeah, he can get three quarts of barley, that's right. It's not as good, it's not as useful, but at least everybody's eating. But, but notice this picture here. These people are living paycheck to paycheck, and if they don't want to use their entire paycheck just to serve themselves and feed themselves, they have to go and spend money on lesser goods that's just barely going to get anybody by. I mean, it's times of trouble. It's times of hardship. It's people who are barely making it, and they're struggling to survive and provide for their most basic needs. And so when you have conquests, when you have bloodshed, when you have famine, when you have economic hardship, what does all that result in? Starts with a D. Death. And that's where you get the last horseman. Notice what it says in verses 7 through 8. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. So this is the fourth horseman. Put him over here. What color is the horse? He's riding a green horse. In the Greek, the word that's used here for pale actually refers to a very pale green, which, fun fact, was the exact same color they used to describe a corpse. That's what they said the color of a corpse was. So it's no surprise that death comes riding in on the color of death. Yeah, not a ghost horse, a zombie horse. Thank you, Nick. All right. And what's the purpose of this rider? It's very simple. It goes with his name. Death. If it makes you all feel better, I'll put pale above green. It's a pale green. It looks like a corpse, right? Zombie horse, as Nick said. So, uh, death comes, and death is followed by Hades. Remember, Hades is not hell. Hell is the final place of torment. Hades is the place that the dead go to await the final judgment. Is there torment going on there? You can ask the rich man in the story of rich man and Lazarus because that's where Hades is mentioned in the Gospels, but I digress. So Hades is basically following death. What is death doing? Death is going and conquering people, killing people, and ushering them into the place where they will wait the final judgment of God and be banished to hell forever. And notice what, what's happening here. You've got conquest, bloodshed, economic hardship, famine, and death and Hades are given authority over a quarter of the earth 
And I want you to notice the four ways that the, this horseman brings death upon the earth. I want you to notice them. There's sword, famine, disease, and wild beast. Why is that significant? If anybody gets this, I'll give you a Bible. But why these four? Why are these four things specific? Like, why are they... What's, what's important about these four? Persecution of the early church? That's a big swing and a miss. But good, good try, Joseph. You're doing good. All right, there's a reference. Anybody know the reference? Gene, you look like you're about to say something. Mm-hmm. Is there another prophet you want to reference? Oh, okay. <laughs> I respect it. All right, Ezekiel 14, 21. This is what the Bible says. For thus says the Lord God, how much more when I send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment, sword, famine, wild beasts, pestilence. To cut off from it man and beast. And so notice what this is saying, that the four acts of judgment that God promised upon his rebellious, disobedient people are the same four acts of judgment that the rider on the fourth horse brings when he comes to the earth. So here's my question. Uh, I don't know how much time we have left. Not, not a lot. My watch says three minutes, but we'll see. Um, most important question we'll ask tonight, uh, when did these four horsemen come? When are they coming to the earth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When does Jesus open the, the seals? When does he break open the seals? Because, yeah, you got it right. When, when the seals are broken open, when he does that, these horsemen are coming. So when does that happen? All right, before we get there, this was the same question the disciples asked Jesus when he was at the Mount of Olives uh, in Matthew 24, in verse 3, the disciples say, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And Jesus said this, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these things are but the beginning of the birth pains. Does that bring any clarity? What do you all think about that? Those things that Jesus just listed, they sound an awful lot like the things that happen when the four horsemen come, right? Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. But the end is not yet. It's the beginning of the birth pains of the end. So it's the beginning, as you, as you just said. And Jesus said that these things mark the beginning of the end. And Revelation signifies that the coming of the horsemen is the beginning of the end since it's the opening of the seals. And once all the seals are opened and everything takes place, that's when the end will come. So, with all that in mind, when did the horsemen come? 
we do, don't we? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So, Ms. Vicky, if I understand you right, you're saying is, I don't know if it's definitive, but I'm going to go with it and say it is. Ms. Vicky is saying when Jesus resurrected and ascended back into heaven, he then went and began to open the seals, and the four horsemen came then and have been active on the earth ever since Jesus' ascension. What do we think about that? Joseph says yes. It's high praise. Yes, okay, yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, actually, I believe that's the right answer, Miss Vicky. Yeah. In, in various degrees, yes. Yes. Yes, you do see these things throughout ancient history but there's an intensification after Jesus' ascension because a lot of it is coming down on Christians specifically. Um, The amount of Christian persecution and martyrdom since his ascension and since the inception of the church, we have been the recipients of this more so than any other group. The Christians are the most persecuted group throughout all of uh, history since we've existed. And so, yeah, uh, Miss Vicki had it right. Since Jesus' ascension... These four horsemen have been active on earth. Because, for instance, do we see the effects of these horsemen today? I mean, for instance, uh, do you see wars and nations seeking to conquer other nations? All the time. I mean, the latest one was Russia and Ukraine. Next one will probably be China and Taiwan. Who knows what North Korea is doing these days? Can't trust them. I mean, you don't know, right? Nations are always conquering other nations. What about, do you see bloodshed in our world today? Do we have peace in our world? I mean, didn't the second rider come to take peace from us? Do we have peace at all? No, this whole country is going crazy, is it not? You look at the riots and the looting and everything else, there's no peace. It's just bloodshed everywhere. How about this? Do you see economic hardships? Do you see people working paycheck to paycheck just to barely provide for themselves and have something to eat? Oh, yeah, all the time. Do you see death by by weaponry, by starvation, by disease, by people being killed by wild beasts? Yeah. All the time. I mean, you see these effects clearly, and you don't need to necessarily think about this as something that happens chronologically. Like, first, all of these things will happen, then all of the, These are simultaneously happening at all times throughout human history. So Jesus ascends, opens the seals, the four horsemen are coming, and they are wreaking havoc on the earth. So, look, we, we can say more about this, probably will next week, but here's what I want you to understand as we just do a couple takeaways very quickly. All of that's concerning, right? It's not fun to come to church and find out that these horsemen are here on earth now, right? It's not what you wanted to hear. Here's the good news. God is sovereign over all that takes place. That's what we need to understand. Because did you notice, it says, to each one was given. They don't just take authority. They don't just have authority. They were given authority by the one who has ultimate Authority. And when God says it's all done, stop what you're doing, they're going to listen to him. When one of the living creatures, that's right, every knee will bow. When the living creatures say, come forward, what do they do? They come forward. I mean, these are merely servants who are enacting what they are supposed to do, which is another concerning thing, but I want you to understand this. God's judgments often involve allowing sin to run its course. That's hard for us to hear, 
But it's true, is it not? I mean, you read about this in Romans chapter 1. God says that after so much time where people are just pleading with people and they just keep denying and they want their sinful ways and their sinful desires, what does God do? The Bible says God eventually just gives them over to their sinful desires. And they suffer the consequences of their own sinful choices. Well, when human hearts affected by sin choose to live according to the way of the beast and the Antichrist and the kingdom of Satan, you expect to see all these things in our world, don't you? That's not saying that God doesn't care. It's not saying he's not involved. But God often uses sin to allow it to run its course as an act of his own judgment. Another thing that I want you to understand, another comfort for you, is that God's mercy is always present. Because did you notice the the fourth creature, the fourth uh, um, rider on the horse, he only has authority over a quarter of the earth, right? And then even with the, the famine, God says, all right, here's the price of wheat, here's the price of barley, but don't touch the oil and the wine. What are those? Those are acts of God's mercy, even in the midst of hardship. So no matter how bad things get, you can understand and know in your heart that God is still good and he is still merciful. And the final thing I want you to just take away from this is that this passage, it shakes our attachment to false sources of security, does it not? I mean, just think about it, right? I mean, look at how people put their trust in things today. People put their trust in a nation, right? I love my country. I trust in this nation. No one can ever do anything to us because we're America. And one day that's going to bite us, isn't it? Someone's going to come and overtake this nation just like they have every other nation before us. There is no hope in trust in uh, trusting in this nation. People put their trust in their jobs all the time, don't they? In their financial status, in their money, in their material good, in their health. And this passage reminds us that all of those things are not true securities at all. You can't trust in them because each and every one of those things is susceptible to the four horsemen, is it not? The horsemen have the authority to take those things away. So why would you put your trust in something so fleeting? It's a way that this passage reminds us that there is only one source of hope, there's only one source of security, there's only one thing that these horsemen can't touch, and that is Jesus. He is our one true hope and our only source of security. And so listen, no matter what happens, we must keep trusting in Jesus because he is good and he will have the victory. Even though they're scary and their effects are scary, Jesus will have the victory. And so we can trust in him. All right, Michael, you give us a word of wisdom.